Before I get into the message this morning, I just, you heard John use the word season a lot, right? Season, season of loss, season of grief, season of change, season of transition. And uh, there's four things I just wanted to share with you about seasons. I think this, that are true of seasons both in nature and in our lives. The first one is this. Every season is different than the previous one. And for those of us that are in winter right now in Syracuse, we say, amen. Spring will be different than winter. Every season in nature, but also every season in life is different than the previous one. And I don't have to convince you that we are entering into a different season as a church. It's just going to be different. The second thing that's true of seasons is that every season requires something different of us. In the winter, we shovel snow. In the summer, we mow the lawn. In the spring, we carry umbrellas. In the fall, we carry pumpkin spice lattes, right? (laughs) Every season requires something different of us, and this season will require something different of you than anything you've experienced before. And It'll require something different of the leadership. It will require something different of the council. And I just want to affirm our church council. These are five people who I trust who love Jesus, who love this church, and uh, who hear from God, and who have a heart for the mission of God. So we are in uh, wonderful hands as far as it relates to the leadership of our church right now. The church council works very closely with Pastor Unhi, who's our co-senior pastor. So it's going to require different things of you in this season. One thing I can tell you up front, it will require new levels of spiritual maturity from all of you. The immaturity in people's hearts surface in seasons of change and transition. And so I just say that as a warning to all of our hearts. If you find yourself becoming impatient, immature, in conversations that you know you shouldn't be in, well, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart and say, this season requires something different of me. Number three, and this is helpful, I think, for all of us who are still very deep in grief. And grief is, uh, you all know this, but grief is a, um, it's, it's confusing, it's a, it's a, there's, you can't put a timeline on grief. You know, you can't, if you're an achiever, you'll hate going through grief because one day you'll think you've taken a step forward and then the next day you'll feel like you've taken five steps backward. And we don't know the timeline of grief. Pastor Unhi, my mom, is in New York City celebrating her sister's 70th birthday this weekend. I'm glad that she's there with my sister and, and Robin's with them and her reentry into church is, is going to be a timeline that we can't predict. It's very, you know, my mom and my dad did everything, everything together. So everything is a reminder. So coming here, being in service, it's, it's difficult. So in God's timing and in God's ways. But every season is only a season. It doesn't last forever. And then the last thought is this about seasons, that every Season, and this is so helpful for my heart. Every season is orchestrated and ordained by the same faithful God. Every season is orchestrated and ordained. He is no less in control in the winter than he is in the summer, no matter how we feel on some of these zero degrees days. Every season is orchestrated and ordained by the same faithful God, and the same faithful God who brought us here will bring us there. He has not failed us yet. He will not fail us. So thank you for leaning in in this season. Thank you already for your, uh, your obvious faithfulness to gather together. We need the community in the season of life. 
We need one another. We need spiritual maturity. We need prayer. We need wisdom. We need clarity. We need direction. And we uh, are not drawing from an empty well, but we are drawing from the very fountain of life who helps us and leads us and guides us through every season of life. We're in week nine of our series, What is the Gospel? This morning, the sermon title is The Gospel Works. The Gospel Works. I grew up in the 80s. I'm 38 years old. I was born in 1978. And when I grew up, both in my family and our country, when it came to sports, baseball was king. Baseball was king in my family because my grandfather was a semi-professional baseball player and my dad played baseball in high school and, and we loved baseball. My earliest memories of watching sports is, is watching baseball. But in the 80s, uh, baseball was still king in our country also. Baseball was the number one sport. Of course, now the NFL has long since surpassed it in popularity. But I, so I grew up playing baseball, Little League baseball. I, I loved baseball. And then I I forget why, but I think I missed the signups, and I missed a year or two of Little League Baseball. And I went back after the year or two off and signed up and tried to go out there, and I realized everybody had gotten so much better except for me, and I didn't want to play baseball anymore. And this coincided with my favorite athlete of the time rising to popularity. Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls won his first championship in 1991. And so I shifted from being all about baseball to being all about basketball. When I was entering into my junior high years at school, I loved basketball. I had posters of Michael Jordan in my room. I was a huge fan. And my dream was to make the basketball team. Like, that's what my goal was as a seventh and eighth grader. I wanted to make the modified basketball team. Now, I went to a small school in the city called Faith Heritage, where technically everybody made the team, so my dream wasn't that unattainable. (laughs) But not everybody made the traveling team. And that's the team I wanted to be on. So there was a, they let everybody join the team, but because of just logistics, they didn't let everybody travel to the road games. And so that was sort of the hierarchy of the best and the next. It was the road team or the travel team, and it was everybody else. And I wanted to make the travel team, and my heart was so set on making this travel team. And so the, the problem was is I actually wasn't very good at basketball. I've never been very good at basketball, and so I had to figure out a different way. And my, my coach back then, he, he loved teaching us and telling us to set picks for each other. Now, if you don't follow basketball or know what basketball is, when you set a pick, basically your team is on offense. Your team has the ball. One of your teammates is dribbling the ball, and you come and you just stand next to their defender, kind of creating a wall so that you block that defender so they can dribble around you unharassed. And so my coach, for whatever reason, was all about setting picks. He always talked about setting picks. And so I was smart enough to know I'm not good enough to make the traveling team through my dribbling, through my shooting, through my passing through my defense, through any of the things that most people do when they play basketball. But I do know how to stand still. (laughs) And so I was like, I'm going to set so many picks, he's not even going to know what's going on. And so that was my whole strategy. And I just remember, all I did, like I didn't want to touch the ball. I had no interest in touching the ball. I just wanted to set picks the whole time. And sure enough, because that was my coach's heart, he added me to the traveling team. And so this dream that I was chasing after I got down, people tell me later that when they would watch us play another team, it looked like only nine people were actually playing basketball. And this 10th person was playing some weird version of tag or something, just (laughs) running around and just standing next to people. But I got what I was chasing after I made the junior high traveling team. 
You know, most of our lives are spent chasing after something. And throughout the history of humankind, if you could summarize what everybody is chasing, I think everybody is chasing meaning, meaning in life. They want their lives to matter. You know, we look out in the world and we say, if I just had, if I just had this one thing, then my life would be perfect. Just this one thing. You know, you ever feel that pressure of making the right choice because you want the perfect thing to make your life perfect? Last weekend when I wasn't with you, I was speaking at a conference in Oklahoma City. And I landed in Oklahoma City on Friday at noon. And I didn't have to be anywhere until about five o'clock at night. So for me, when I travel and I have windows of time like that, I know other people will nap, some people will do work, some people will go see touristy things. I look for the best restaurant. Like that's my, that's my number one goal. And so I did all this research and I found that there were three really famous places in Oklahoma City. One was a pizza place, one was a hamburger joint, and the other one was Mexican. Now I like all of those. So I was tortured. I was like, I, what's, the, what's, what's the one? What's the best one that's going to make my perfect lunch? You know, I just, if I just can get that one thing, then my day will be perfect. I actually visited two of them, but we were, <laughs> don't tell my wife that. Sometimes we, we say, if I make my life about this one thing, then my life will make sense and matter. And so some people build their entire lives around their careers because they think by doing so, it makes their life matter. Or people build their lives around a cause, They give their entire lives and all their passions towards some sort of a cause or to some sort of a creed, some sort of a belief system, and so they build their lives around that. As we go through life, we know that we haven't arrived yet, but we're pretty sure we know what it will look like when we do. We have a pretty clear picture in our minds, and so we carefully aim our lives towards that vision of the good life, whatever it may be. And we look at other people who seem to have what we want, and we're convinced that if it's working for them, it will work for us. And so we chase after that thing, just like I chased after being on the traveling basketball team. But here's the question we all have to wrestle with at some point. Do those things really work? Do they really work or do we just think they work? Do they really work or do we just hope they work? Well, who better to ask than a person who had everything? We're going to look in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, written by a king named Solomon. Now, Solomon was one of the sons of one of the most famous kings and famous characters in all of the Bible. His name was David. And uh, after David was done being king, Solomon rose to power and became king. And Solomon surpassed even his dad in wisdom and wealth. God gave Solomon wisdom so that he was the wisest man on the earth but also wealth, so that it was really the golden age of the nation of Israel. This king had it all. I mean, he had everything. He had so much gold, he didn't know what to do with it. He was just making his plates out of gold and his cups out of silver because it was like, I don't know, make that out of gold. Make that out of silver. Like just so much wealth that kings and, and queens from all over the world would travel to see Solomon just to marvel at the fact that their chariots were made out of gold. And so Solomon has everything, yet he has this crisis in his life, and it's captured in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he's taking stock of his life, and he's sharing the search that he's been on to find something that will work, to find something that will give his life meaning, and he realizes it's all meaningless. Here's some of the things that he turns to, friends and laughter, and he throws the biggest parties you could ever imagine. But the party ends eventually, and everybody goes home. And then you got to clean up. And then what fun is that, right? (laughs) 
He brings the best entertainers of the time to his parties to make them even better, but it's not enough. And then he spends a, a large portion of his wife thinking, life thinking it's women, and so he has wives and concubines, 300 wives and 700 concubines. Concubines are just women who existed for his pleasure. So a 1,000 women at his disposal at any time, not enough. He, he also was about business and career, and he built an incredible kingdom, and he accumulated great wealth. He had, access to, he had access to everything that our society today says, that'll work. That'll work. Just get one of those things, and you'll be good. And he had them all, and none of it worked. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he's actually now saying, well, maybe the meaning of life is found in wisdom, intellectualism being educated, being smarter than other people. And, and some people do. They wrap their entire lives around the idea that they are more educated than the person next to them, that they can make a better argument, that they know more. And so look at what he says here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, so I, we're beginning in verse 12, Ecclesiastes 2, reading verses 12 through 17. He says, so I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness, for who can do, better than, who can do this better than I, the king? I thought... Wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. For the wise can see where they are going, but fools walk in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, well, what's the value of all my wisdom? This is also meaningless. For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless as chasing the wind. It's not the most pick-me-up scripture passage you've ever read, right? <laughs> you don't want to start your, morning with, your Monday morning with Ecclesiastes. I hate life. Everything done here is troubling, and everything here is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. You know, Solomon had it all. Everybody looked at him and thought, he arrived. And when I get where he is, I'll be happy. But he says it's all meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. You know, you've heard me say this before, but, but, the, but worse than not getting what you think you want is getting it and then realizing it was never enough to begin with. That's a whole different level of misery. And that's where Solomon was. Literally nothing evaded his grasp. There wasn't anything he couldn't get. If he dreamed it up, he could get it. And he did that for a long time. But then he looked at his life and said, none of this actually is working. None of this works. And as long as something evades your grasp, at least you have the carrot on the stick to say, well, the reason I'm so unhappy is because I don't have the carrot yet. But what happens when you got the carrot in your mouth and you're still unhappy? That's the worst. And that's where Solomon is. In fact, a couple years ago, Jim Carrey, famous actor, comedian, he, he said this. I thought I've shared this with you before. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that none of it's the answer. I wish everybody could get rich and famous and have everything they dreamed of so that they would realize, he was saying, like I've realized, it's not the answer. It just doesn't work. Now, none of this means that we can't enjoy the beauty and wonders of nature. None of this means that we can't appreciate art and music. 
None of this means we can't read a good book or look forward to each other's company or experience meaningful love on this earth. None of this means we shouldn't work hard towards our goals. And most importantly, none of this means we can't enjoy a good steak. I mean, that, that's, not what, that's not what any of this means. But here's what it means. Those things on their own are meaningless. The good things of this life will prove, will prove to be meaningless. When they become the point of your life, when they are the very thing you chase, then eventually they will be exposed to be insufficient, to be lacking, to be not enough. Nothing on this earth on its own works. Nothing on this earth on its own gives us lasting meaning. C.S. Lewis, in his great book, Mere Christianity, he says this so well. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. Isn't that a great line? If we find within ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were created for another world where we will be satisfied. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. What he's saying is, when you see nature and it takes your breath away, when you hear a piece of music that makes your eyes tear up, when you eat a burger that makes you praise Jesus, you know, <laughs> any of those things, C.S. Lewis is saying, all of those things, the best of this world is just meant to sort of wake your heart up to another world. You think that's great? Well, wait, hope, trust, look. He goes on to say, if that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, right? But on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo, or mirage. I must, keep myself, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. Isn't that helpful? You know, Solomon actually hints at this issue. In the very next chapter, we're not going to read it, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, one of the most famous lines from Ecclesiastes is where Solomon says that God has set eternity in the heart of every human being. And what Solomon means there is the reason why everything feels meaningless and wasteful and insufficient and doesn't make me happy is because I have eternity placed within me. And the only thing that will fill that need for eternity is an eternal God. And so God has placed within each one of us something that makes us realize there's more. There's, there's something else. And because it's been placed within us, we chase after things. You know, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he says, don't let the excitement of your youth cause you to forget your creator. What he's saying is sometimes the created things are so exciting, we forget the creator. We get so caught up in the gift that we forget the giver of the gift. And we run around worshiping, as Romans 1 warns us not to do, we run around worshiping the created things instead of worshiping the creator but it doesn't work. Worshiping created things never works. Well, how, how is the gospel better? In other words, how does the gospel work when nothing else does? That's what we're talking about this morning, the idea that the gospel works. Let me just give some examples here uh, from Solomon's life. You can pursue laughter 
right? Good times, laughter. I mean, I, I love to laugh. I love to be around people that laugh. So there's nothing wrong with laughter. I think laughter is a gift from God that we should, we should do. You can pursue laughter, but, you know, laughter isn't a guaranteed thing in your life. It can go missing, can it? When friends leave or times get tough. But the gospel shows us that through Jesus, we can have joy despite any circumstance. It's not just simply laughter and good times, but it's a deep joy in any circumstance of life. Doesn't, of course, mean that the circumstances that we walk through don't weigh on us. You know, don't, don't buy into the lie that because you're a Christian, you have to always get out of your sadness as quickly as possible or get out of your sorrow, get out of your grief. You know, the, the Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrows who was well acquainted with grief. You know what I think that means for those of us in this room that are grieving various things this morning? In your sorrow and in your grief, you're not becoming less like Jesus. You're actually becoming more like him. So we talk about joy. It's, see, there's a difference between frivolous laughter and empty happiness and joy. Joy is the thing that has a, it, sometimes it expresses itself in our sorrow by simply we just keep stepping forward. Joy isn't always jumping up and down. Sometimes joy is just taking the next step, just stepping forward, stepping forward. You can pursue pleasures, you can get drunk, you can get high, but at best, you know, that just gives you momentary courage or temporarily dulls your reality. It actually, you know this, it doesn't change your reality. When you come out of that high, it's the same. Often it's worse, but it's, it's not better. It just dulls the reality. But the gospel invites you into a new story, a new reality, through faith in Jesus. The things that we try to build up on this earth will eventually fade away, but through Jesus, we can be part of a kingdom that will last forever. You could build your life on money and material possessions, but it will never be enough. And listen, you know this, you're always one mistake or one tragedy away from losing it all. In the gospel of Jesus, we find the richness that our hearts really need, the richness of God's mercy and grace towards sinners. You can make your way through life by trying to control others with your power, your influence, or your constant activity. But your soul will never know rest. You'll never be at peace. And eventually, you'll be haunted by the thought of just how unable you are to control the outcomes that matter most. The gospel reveals Jesus as someone who you can cast your cares upon, and you can trust in his plan. You can pursue more knowledge, but you always live in fear of looking stupid or running into someone who's smarter than you. Jesus is the source of wisdom who, who growing in him, gives us both wisdom, listen, gives us both wisdom and the freedom to appear foolish in other people's eyes. But there's more than all of this. Jesus is not only better than all the good things I just mentioned, but Jesus gave up all those things so that he could have you and me. That's at the heart of the gospel. Think about this. Jesus was rejected by his own people and family and abandoned by his closest friends so we would never go without a friend, so that we could have a father who would adopt us in. Jesus was separated from his father so that we could be brought into the father's home. Jesus allowed his joy to be taken away from him on the cross so that we could find joy in him. Jesus allowed his reality to become painful so that we don't have to dull our reality, but we can walk through everything looking at the cross. Jesus let his body be broken so that your heart could be made whole. Jesus became poor so that we could be made rich. The God of the universe gave up total control to be, you know, Jesus, I told this to Lilia and Caroline the other day. I said to Caroline, I said, Caroline, you know, Jesus was a six-year-old. She's six. I said, you know, Jesus was a six-year-old. 
We don't think of Jesus as a six-year-old. So Jesus was a six-year-old. He knows what your life is like, minus the iPads. But he knows, he, he knows, he knows what your life is like. You, can, you should tell your kids that. You can talk to Jesus. He was your age. I mean, obviously, if you're over 33, then you're out of luck. But, but <laughs> before that, he was, he was your age. Jesus knows Jesus was cared for like a baby's cared for. Jesus' diaper was changed. The God who controlled everything allowed himself to be cared for as a baby. Talk about giving up control. And then ultimately, he submitted his body to Roman soldiers to be whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross. Why? So that we don't have to try and wrap our arms around everything in our lives, but we can trust a God who has a plan who has a purpose, who is at work. Jesus gave up intimacy with the Father so that we could have true intimacy with him. And Jesus died the death of a fool so that we could experience the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus laid down all the things that we think work. Think about that. He laid down all the things that this world says, it'll work. Just get more. Just hang in there. Just hold on. He laid it all down all the things that we think provide meaning so that we could be connected to the only one who can really give us meaning, who can really give us purpose, who can satisfy our hearts. And this story is called the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God is rescuing humanity and renewing creation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And the gospel works. Well, how does it work? Let me finish with this. How does the gospel work? And then we're going to take communion together in just a few minutes. It works because the gospel is both true and it's beautiful. It's both objectively true and it is subjectively beautiful. So on one hand, it's entirely credible, right? I heard uh, a pastor one time say, if a worldview, if anybody's worldview is going to have any validity, it has to have two things. It has to be um, intellectually credible, can't be cuckoo crazy, right? And it has to be existentially satisfying, which basically means it has to work. It's got to satisfy. Existentially satisfying, intellectually credible. And the gospel, the story of Jesus is intellectually credible. I don't have the time to unpack it, but if you struggle with this, I can point you to resources which will help you understand the, the historical Jesus Christ, the story of Christianity, that this isn't just blind faith, but there's evidence outside of scripture that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and that you look at the evidence of the world that's been changed by this carpenter, vagabond, traveling minister has literally turned the world upside down like There is intellectual credibility to Christianity. It's true. But there's also existential, it also existentially satisfies, which means it's beautiful. It works. So it it works here, but it also works here. Now, for some of us, we're, we're better one way or the other. You're somewhere on the spectrum. You don't care so much about how true it is. You've just experienced it. And that's enough. And I would encourage you, that's great for you. But when you're trying to help someone else, you got to know some of this. And then some of us are over here. We know it pretty well in our heads, but we can't always sense it in our lives, in our hearts. And for us that are like that, it's a little bit trickier. Because to get it from your head to your heart, 
there are things you need to do as far as resting your, as far as reminding yourself of the gospel, hearing gospel preaching, listening to the right stuff, submersing your heart as much as you can in these truths, submerging your hearts. But ultimately, only the Holy Spirit makes it beautiful to our hearts. Now, I, I came across an example of this this week. I was uh, uh, there's a video that went viral on CNN, and I don't know if you, any of you saw this, but it was about a ten year old boy who was colorblind. Anyone see this video? 10-year-old boy who was colorblind. And scientists, now my, actually, you may not have known this, my dad was colorblind. He, he, he really had our time between red and greens, which made driving dangerous with him. But uh, <laughs> no, he figured it out. But he, he did have some level of colorblind his whole life, colorblindness. This kid was colorblind, very extremely colorblind. But scientists have created these glasses. They look like sunglasses. Uh, I forget what they're called, but the way they work is they filter out certain wavelengths so that people who are colorblind can now see color. And I recommend you go search this video. You just search, you know, 10-year-old boy colorblind, and it'll probably pop up. But in this video, this boy, they bring him out to the porch of his house, and they put out on the yard nine different colored Frisbees. He can't tell what is what. He goes out there, he puts on the sunglasses, and he looks and now the sunglasses, of course, are covering his eyes, so you don't get to really see his full expression, but you can see his whole face just go. And if I was him, I would have like immediately started looking at everything. But he was so overwhelmed that he, he just immediately buried his face in his dad's chest, and they, they began to weep together. It's, so, it's, it's a very moving video. It's a very mo- and he's just weeping, and his dad is weeping, and they're crying because he's never seen color before, 10 years of life. He's seen color for the first time. It's powerful. And right after that scene, they interview the boy, and the boy said something like this. He said, I've always known what those colors were, but I'd never seen them before. I'd always known what those colors were, but I'd never seen them before. And in a sense, you can always, you could go through your whole life knowing what the gospel is, but you have to see it. You have to taste it. It has to not just be true, it has to be beautiful. And when it becomes beautiful to your heart and you see Jesus dying on a cross for your sins, and you see him with his last words saying, Father, forgive them. He's praying that for you too, by the way, not just the soldiers. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. When you see that, when you taste it, when it goes from your head to your heart, here's what happens. That beauty becomes so overwhelming in your heart that it pushes out the other things that you think are so beautiful. It just doesn't leave room for, the, for, for your heart being captured by the beauty of wealth, by the beauty of having this, by the beauty of being... It doesn't mean that your life doesn't still have those things in it. But what it means is that it doesn't sit on the throne of your heart. It's not the most beautiful thing. Because once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then the most beautiful thing is the gospel, is Jesus. And when you're there, and I don't know how to get you there, but the Spirit of God does. When you're there, the gospel works. It will work in great times. It will work in normal times. It will work in tough times. Winter, spring, summer, fall, the gospel will work. Let's bow our heads together this morning.